Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. Hi, I'm Juliana Stanley, a practice management consultant with the Texas Medical Association. I managed a successful specialty practice, but even though I had years of practical experience as well as a college degree, I still found gaps in my knowledge when it came to measuring practice performance. It was challenging to locate an affordable resource for the education I was seeking. It was time to find practical help and overcome what I didn't know. I made it my mission to learn how to measure practice success. It is my hope that this podcast will provide you with the knowledge you need to begin evaluating your practice using real data and eliminate guesswork. TMA has a long, proud history of promoting patient rights, advocating for physicians, and providing real solutions for your practice. We can accomplish so much when we unite in one voice. Call the TMA Knowledge Center at 1-800-880-7955 or visit TexMed.org to find out how you can join or renew your membership today. One of the things I do here at TMA is to work with physicians who need to hire new staff members. Today, I'm talking with Marisol Navarro, who is one of our resident human resources experts. Marisol, I'm so happy to be here with you. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Thank you, Juliana. I'm Marisol Navarro, human resources manager with the Texas Medical Association. I've been with the TMA for 12 years and have almost 20 years experience in HR. For the past five years at TMA, I've been focused on recruitment um, and onboarding. So you've been busy. Super busy. (laughs) There's so much to learn about human resources and recruiting staff is such a daunting task. I know there's no perfect candidate out there, but can you tell us how practices find the best candidate for a job? Definitely. I think we should start with step one, which is identifying the hiring need. We'll first work with identifying the ideal hiring timeline. So that's a problem that we see often. It seems like our doctors never have enough time. Um, When there is an opening, they have to fill it right away. So they end up hiring the person who's available instead of maybe the person who's right for the job. Yes, and that can definitely turn into a big mistake, landing you in the exact predicament as before. I can see that. So as far as... An immediate scenario, if you have limited time to hire, you should consider contacting a temp agency to fill urgent positions. Um, the, outcome, the outcome, I'm sorry, isn't always positive, but it can be a helpful placeholder. Okay, so that's a good tip. Have a temp agency on board to help us when we need somebody right away while we search for the person that's right for the long term? That's exactly right. So I would continue on with hiring, which is First, also creating a budget for the new position. Approve the salary range if you're filling a vacancy. So Marisol, many of our TMA members call with questions about salary. How can they find out what a job should pay? Some good resources for you to search are salary.com, Glassdoor, SHRM, which is the Society for Human Resources Management, and the Workforce Commission. Good to know. It's hard to compete with large healthcare systems. 
How can we hire and retain staff when we can't pay a competitive salary? Well, intangible benefits can help boost employee retention and can be as effective as monetary perks for employees. Um, Some examples of that would be flexible work schedules, free parking, staff lunches, and simply a note card saying thank you or a simple acknowledgement of saying thank you. Thank you is a really nice thing to say because it it makes you feel like they notice you're there for one (laughs) and, and actually appreciate the efforts that you put in. So that one goes a long way in my book. And it's free. (laughs) <laughs> Good point. <laughs> so now that we've decided when we need to hire, we have a temporary agency to work with, and we know what salary to offer, how do we know what to look for in an employee? Well, what's hum- helpful is to understand your company culture. Um, knowing your company culture can help understand the environment the employee will have, as well as the personality you're looking for. Um, and that's to say that if you're hiring for a busy practice and you need a receptionist, you don't want somebody who's necessarily an introvert. You want to look for an extrovert for that position. So you want somebody who's going to be talkative and friendly in the right environment. But if it's a super busy practice where they don't have time to chat, maybe you're not looking for somebody who's quite as chatty as, for example, myself. That's right. <laughs> you need someone to be focused full time. So you need the right personality for the right job. That's exactly right. <laughs> okay. All right. So how do we go about developing our job description so we know what we're looking for? So if you don't already have one in place, there are several templates online. Um, again, different resources available that can help you um, follow and discover the job title, department, and supervisor, identify the basic function, Location is huge. That way, the candidate will have an understanding of where they'll be commuting. Um, also, the hours be specific, whether it's full-time or part-time, and how many hours those actually entail, and whether or not, um, if you could also list, you know, this position is 8.15 to 5.15 or 6 a.m. to 2 p.m., whatever that might be. Um, and, of course, if you can disclose the salary, that is also helpful as well so that, again, the candidate can make that decision before they even apply whether or not they want to proceed. Right. So those are really big ones. Um, for example, we're located in downtown Austin, and if you're hiring somebody for a shift of 8 to 5, they might not be crazy about that location with the traffic. Right. 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 And they would have to make that decision if they want to commute, you know, you know, have to prepare their day two hours in advance just to get to work. So, mm-hmm. so is this the part where you would list the non-negotiable parts of a position? Yes. So you would include what certifications are required, what licensure is required, such as if you're hiring a phlebotomist or a medical assistant, you know that certification is required for that. So if you have a plumber applying for that position, you already know that you can immediately disqualify. Right. Them. And it happens. It, it happens. really does. Yes. So um, somebody that's, might be looking to change careers, but exactly they might not right. have the right credentials to do it. Or maybe they changed careers a long time ago and they do have their phlebotomy certification. And so it's just <laughs> listed on the bottom of their certifications in life. So that's a good point, too. I didn't think about that. Um, So is it okay to continually change or update the job description? It seems like every time technology changes or new persons hired, job duties are added or the practice discovers that duties are duplicated in multiple positions. So they need to change that. It's helpful if previous staff can assist in adjusting 
Um, ideally, you want the hiring manager to focus on that. You, of course, don't want to rely on previous staff to assist if they were a poor fit for your practice. So ideally, you would refer to the previous staff if they were trustworthy and a good fit. Right. That always makes me nervous because I've seen some practices with bad habits that have just been passed down from employee to employee, and they don't really know how much of it's wrong or how long it's been going on or the job just hasn't been getting done. That's right. So that's definitely an opportunity for improvement at that point to make those changes. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we're ready to advertise for the job. How do we develop that ad? So again, you want to determine your budget. Um, some preferred sites are Indeed and Glassdoor based on their affordability. Uh, when you move into job sites such as LinkedIn or other job-specific association uh, boards, they can be beneficial, but they can be pricier because you're trying to focus like, you know, the association for phlebotomists. I'm sorry, I keep using phlebotomy, but it's just what's it's in my head. It's a common position. Common <laughs> position. Um, it's helpful to recruit from those places, but it definitely can be more expensive. Right. A strategy we use sometimes is to post the ad for a couple of days in on, you know, different job boards, Indeed or whatnot, um, but with a limited budget of, say, $100 or so. And then if we find we're not getting qualified candidates, then we can stop that ad and and put it somewhere else. But um, we try to go with the least expensive solution first and then maybe move on to the specialty society where where that ad has to run longer or has a bigger price tag or something like that. That's definitely a great strategy. Um, I would also be sure that your company website is updated, um, a description of your company and its mission, and to also display the benefits. Even if they might not be competitive with large healthcare systems? Yes. I like to put myself in the applicant's shoes. Um, And I believe applicants appreciate transparency, which allows them to make their own decision to proceed with the application process based on posted benefits. I see. That makes sense. So how do you suggest writing the ad? I see so many that are extremely detailed. I mean... I know what they're saying and what they want, but my eyes glaze over about halfway through. I just, I can't read all that. Applicants probably feel the same way. (laughs) Probably. Um, (laughs) They say, now what is this about? That's right. They're like, okay, you see like three key points that you are capable of doing. You're like, okay, I I can do that. I wonder if that's one reason we get not qualified candidates too, because if the the job description is so long, Mm -hmm. people stop reading, they don't get to that bottom part where the the qualifications are more specific exactly they're Mm -hmm. like yes i can read yes i can write i got it (laughs) (laughs) um so i would say refer back to the job description emphasize the non-negotiable points such as licensure and the culture of the practice um, such as if it's a super busy practice looking for a multitasker or if it's a quiet environment looking for someone who is very focused focused yes Yes. that that would be, be a good buzzword When we're ready to start um, screening the applicants, how do we go about that? What's that process look like? When I'm reviewing resumes, I eliminate those based on their red flags. Some of those can be job hopping, grammar issues, communication skills. And when I say job hopping, I mean maybe they have six months here, six months there, a year. Um, I take into consideration whether or not they lived in Arizona and then moved to California. Those are somewhat okay, but if I see that their job hopping has been all here in Austin, Texas, and have all been six months to a year, I'm going to wonder why. So that that sends up a a warning to you, like you said, a red flag. Right. 
Um, additionally, I want to know what they're really looking for in their field, uh, what the next best thing. Are they just hoping that, okay, now I'm this and I'm ready to move on to this position? Um, so you want to make sure that does this job really match their goals? And their experience. And their experience. So again, if I'm looking for a director, I know likely that if I have a receptionist applying, the, I guess an experienced receptionist applying for a director position, that's likely not going to be the ideal candidate that I'm looking for. But if I have an office manager that has been within their role for about five to seven years, that's someone that I would take into consideration. Another thing to consider that you can kind of gauge from their resume is determining what they're really looking for in their field. Sometimes people just really want the next best thing, but they have to understand when they're coming into your role that that next best thing may not come around for another five years or so, and they have to be okay with that. So you can also kind of gauge that from the positions that they've hopped from, you know, if they've gone from receptionist to maybe office manager and then back to something else, you can see that they're really trying to climb within their field. Um, but they also have to understand the limitations of what you're working with within your practice. My resume looked like that for a long time. Receptionist, biller, um, insurance contracting, and then up to uh, office coordinator and then up to office manager. But if you looked at just the time frames, mm -hmm. it was some of them were kind of short. Right. What would you say that it was that you were really looking for, or that was your reasons for making? Those I was moves? just trying to advance everything right within my career. Yes, and it's I shouldn't put this, I guess, generalization out there, but it is somewhat true as far as millennials go. Just the pace of things, they just want it so much faster, you know, versus where people, and I don't know how to properly say it PC-wise, you know, older generations, I guess, where um, you are used to staying at a job for 10, 20, 30 years, and that's where you're going to retire from. And that's no longer the standard for today. Right. Know? I was just reading an article that talks about the different generations working within the same company the same group yes and how their attitudes toward work differ yes and i don't think it's necessarily a bad thing it's not a bad because thing because you've got young ambitious people and right. you've got older people who are steady and have been there for a long time and if you can get them to communicate with each other and learn from one another right. and that goes both ways both ways it can be a really killer combination absolutely because you're learning from the institutional knowledge that's already there but then at the same time these great new resources how do i use twitter how do i use instagram to market my company and still um, manage how we've always done it, which is still good because you want to keep that standard of the practice. Because yeah, the ultimate goal existed. is to take good care of the patient. That's exactly right. right. That makes sense. What are some ways you can keep track of these applications as they're coming in? We used to use Outlook uh, 12 years ago when I started in this role, and that was perfectly capable of handling all the resumes that we would get in for each position um, until it became overwhelmed and inundated with too many Word documents or PDFs. So then we had to move on to SharePoint, which our wonderful IT team created for us. Um, and again, until that system could no longer hold all those resumes. Um, so now we moved over to a new platform, which is an ATS, an applicant tracking system. That might be more appropriate for larger health systems. Um, but for smaller practice, practices, I would say that you can still definitely get away with using Outlook or whatever email system. Um, you can create specifically resumes at 
whatever.org or however you want to market it, but still review the resumes coming through. So when you say you're using Outlook, you mean you're creating folders to put qualified and disqualified candidates That's exactly into? right. Yes. Yeah, so it's okay. helpful to kind of categorize them so that you're not overwhelmed by the amount. So just eliminate them based on the red flags that we discussed earlier, and then put the ones that you do feel that you would like to consider into the qualified ones and then proceed from there. Okay. And then when you get to the screening calls, what do you do? I mean, are you calling and asking basic questions or what are you doing from there? Yes. So what I like to do at that point is just kind of reiterate what the job is that they applied for, um, our location, and again, the salary, and whether or not it's full-time or part-time to kind of disclose those hours just to remind them of what it is. And if they want to proceed, then I'd go ahead and schedule the interview. And for our listeners, please be sure to check the show notes for a list of red flags. To recap here, we're going to identify our hiring need, determine the ideal time frame, but we might need a temporary fix to fill an immediate need. We need to update our job description so we can make sure the person has the necessary job skills, advertise the job's posting, and screen applicants based on the job description we just set up. So now we're ready to do in-person interviews, right? That's correct. I know there are a lot of do's and don'ts to the process and a lot of information we want to know, but we can't ask. Can you guide us through that? You'll want to prepare your hiring manager or yourself for the do's and don'ts of interviewing. Some of the don'ts include age, arrest record, pregnancy, national origin, and citizenship. We really, as an employer, have a responsibility to make sure we're checking criminal history and citizenship. So how do we go about that? So that is done when you contingently offer your I guess, top candidate, the position. So you're going to say, we'd love to offer you the position contingent upon the successful completion of a background check. Hopefully then you have your second runner up that if for whatever reason, your first contender comes back with a bad background check that you have number two to go back on. Okay. So we can't ask any of this during the interview process or it's safest not to. It's safest not to. Okay. And then the background check is going to tell us both criminal history, as well as legal status to work? That's right. And then again, like I said, you can rescind the job offer if it comes back um, with a arrest record that relates to the job that you wouldn't find suitable. Okay. So if somebody had, I don't know, a misdemeanor 20 years ago, that's probably not relevant. But if they have a theft or forgery conviction in the last two years, that's probably significant that's if I'm going to have them at the front desk, Definitely right? significant. Okay. I understand why you can't ask some of these questions, but you know many interviews don't really go that way. Doctors want to know if they can count on staff to be there. Do they have kids who will be out sick? Is there someone at home to help? Is there a way to find out how reliable someone is without breaking the rules, Marisol? Yes, a great question would be, is there anything that would prevent you from being at work on time as required? But you don't want to ask, do you have reliable transportation to and from work? A lot of the times during the interview, um, some candidates will keep it strictly professional. Some will go straight to the personal aspect. When you ask, tell me a little bit about yourself. And that will help hopefully answer some of the burning questions you have. Yeah, I've had people walk in and I've said, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself, expecting professional experience, and I get like their whole life story. That's right. Way more information than I actually needed 
or that I would have ever asked, but they want to share. <laughs> and sometimes it's helpful. And you might find that you like that person even more, but sometimes you're like, mm, no. <laughs> no. A little oversharing. A little oversharing. Let's not do that. Yes. Okay. What's the best approach to an effective interview? Do you like to have a really structured process or do you prefer a casual group interview or what's best? I like to start with a candidate one-on-one with HR and then pass them on to the hiring manager as appropriate and allow the hiring manager to talk more specifically about the job. There are different interviewing styles. You could also do a panel interview, which can be intimidating to the candidate. Um, if that does happen, I always like to give the candidate a heads up that once we finish meeting here, I'm going to take you on up to meet with the group and at least identify who that group will be. So this is the one where you're in the conference room and with the candidate at one end of the table and everybody else around there and they all ask their questions? Yes. That is intimidating. It can be intimidating. Um, I even you know, try to give them a heads up even beforehand before we act when we actually schedule the interview so that they are well prepared and I'll outline exactly who what the job titles are so that they know who they are and hopefully do their own research. Um, there's also interview assessments or behavioral based interviewing which can include scoring but it also depends on what works for you depending on I guess your personality type of and maybe type the of specialty person. of the practice and too. the specialty of the practice. Okay. How do you know if the person is a good fit for the practice? For example, how would I find out if they will interact well with my staff? So one of the questions that you can ask regarding team members is, tell me about a time when you were part of a great team. What was your part in making the team effective? Or you can say, give me an example of a time when you had to deal with a difficult coworker and how did you handle the situation? Some of the questions that I like to ask are, what interests you about the job? That provides me the opportunity to hear exactly how much research the candidate actually did about the job, or if they were just applying just to apply for the job and not really understanding what they were coming into. Um, Another question is, why did you leave your last position? Or why are you seeking to leave your current position? Again, this helps me get a feel of what they're really looking for um, within their career. And what are your long-term career goals is also another question. I guess key identifier for me is if in the next five to 10 years, what are you really looking for? Again, if they're applying for a receptionist and they're hoping to climb the ladder within the next five to 10 years, that might be an okay timeframe for them to proceed. But if they're looking for something more immediate saying, you know, within the next year, I'd like to become this and you know, it's not available within your practice, then you probably know that that's not a good fit for them. Right. So I've had practices where the receptionist was moved up But I've had practices where you know that receptionist is never going to get to go anywhere. So I can understand why the long-term goals is is really important. What does the question about the the team uh, interaction tell you? you? How do you evaluate their answer? It helps just identify what their response may be or what their behavior may be, just depending on if it's a shocking answer and you're like, nope. <laughs> or, you know, if it's it's reasonable, if you know that, you know, sometimes you're going to be upset within your job, but you're going to still keep on going. So it just kind of depends on how they answer. And sometimes you can tell they're totally making something up. Yes. Because, uh, yeah, I never, ever have contributed to a team, but maybe this is a good one. That's right. Yes. <laughs> Okay. In medical practices, staff have to work very closely with one another. And in fact, there are a lot of days where the staff is expected to be finishing up tasks while the physician's not in the office. 
What kind of question can I ask to find out if my candidate is the kind of person who's going to stick to it and keep making the phone calls and, and working through their task list, or if they're going to be the one who's going to be visiting or on their phone or something like that instead? I would ask, if you had to work autonomously, what would your workday look like? And kind of gauge their response from there. So hopefully, as they're making up their answer, you can tell they're making it up. Or if they're actually telling you, well, these are the things that I would do to keep myself busy. Exactly. All right. And I hopefully like they're one. honest on both sides where they say, well, I guess if he's not here, then I'll catch up on my personal emails or vice versa. Or they'll say, I've tried something to do to finish in the practice. So hopefully they're honest on both sides. Right. Because it's funny because they will tell you the truth. Yes. They really will if you're just listening for it, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So then we should be ready to make our job offer. That's right. So um, we'll offer the job to the top contender with the contingency of passing the background check and again discuss the salary. Negotiations aren't ideal, so stay within the budget. Um, you want to agree on a start date between you, the candidate, and the hiring manager if available and create the job offer letter and there are several templates available online and then ideally wait until the new hire starts before sending rejection notices just in case for whatever reason you might need to go to your runner-up. Okay. The job offer letter includes the position, the start date, what else? Salary, um, and try to keep it as basic as possible. You just want to outline the basics. This is your job. This is what you're being offered. And this is when you're going to start. And then everything else can just be left to the job description. So we want to be careful to not turn it into a contract. Right. Okay. All right. Here's another big problem. Many employers have stopped providing work references and, you know, personal references are not reliable because they're just your friend who's going to say nice things about you. Right. How do doctors protect themselves when nobody can say anything about why somebody left or why they were fired? It, it, again, is just relying upon the background check, and that's about as much information as you're going to get. Unless for whatever reason you are lucky and somebody knew somebody that worked there that they're disclosing off record, that's really the only way you're going to find out. Uh I called a personal reference one time and they said, "Um, yeah, I don't know why you're calling me. I said, well, so-and-so used you as a reference for a a job application. And they said, well, I only worked with her for about two weeks and that really wasn't great. (laughs) Okay. That's right. (laughs) I'm glad I called you. Yes. (laughs) So we still call. (laughs) Right. Right. Okay. So to do a final recap, we've made a decision. We've offered the job to the candidate. The candidate has accepted. Now what do we do? So... We've established a start date and hopefully they started their day fresh and you've prepared their onboarding paperwork, which would include their W-4, their I-9, um, direct deposit, emergency contact information, just to cover the basics. Um, as far as the I-9, you want to make sure that that's provided um, to you within three days of hire. And by providing that information, that's their um, driver's license, Uh, passport, social security card, birth birth certificate. There are a list of acceptable items, but you can't specify which of those documents um, are required. Okay, so we can tell them which ones they could bring in, but we can't tell them which ones they have to bring in? That's right. Okay. And then I know um, when they do the background check, maybe E-Verify might be part of that. Yes. Does that take the place of the I-9? No, they still need to provide documentation, proof um, of identification to work within the United States. Okay. 
that all makes sense. Um, and then we have this next mysterious step called onboarding. Right. Tell me about that. <laughs> so onboarding is basically just preparing the candidate, well, not candidate now, it's your new hire, your new person um, for everything that they need to be successful within their role. So um, hopefully you've already established all that new hire paperwork. You've already got that out of the way so that they have a smooth and welcoming first day. Um, and determine if any probation periods are necessary, and then move on to conduct employee training. So when you say employee training, are you talking about OSHA and HIPAA and what it's like to work in the company, or are you talking about job training? Both. Both, okay. Because you want to make sure that all of your bases are covered as far as they've been assigned this certain training, you know, within this certain period of time, but also how do you answer the phone? What do you say when you answer the phone? Um, when do you schedule a patient? What do you do when a patient leaves? So they're obviously going to need to know all these different steps to do within their position. Okay. Uh, one thing I've noticed, I think, is that training is often too casual. It's kind of a sink or swim, like, okay, here you go. Here's the key. We didn't teach you how to drive, but you go for it. Um, so I think that it's really critical for the employer and the manager to have a plan for what they're going to do um, and kind of set the employee up to succeed so that you don't have to be going through this process again in six months when that person didn't work out because they didn't know what they were supposed to be doing. That's exactly right. It's just helpful just to kind of try to cover everything and make resources available, whether it's another staff member or some type of training man manual available to okay. the new employee. So it's great. So we got to make the time and the resources available. Yes. Perfect practice tip. Marisol, this has been so helpful to talk with you today. There's so much to understand about recruitment and hiring processes, and I feel like I've got information I can use right away. Well, thanks so much for having me, Juliana. Thank you so much for joining us. Make sure to check the show notes for links to additional resources, including interview questions, interview do's and don'ts, and an employee handbook. Please watch for future podcasts when we'll talk about discipline, retraining, and terminations.